the common theme that you'll hear here is transitions. You're going to transition from one way of being that you were used to into another situation that's new to you. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy and thanks for listening in as we talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today are Cindy and Merle Meyer. They are community chaplains and after all we've been going through these last couple of years, chaplaincy has become even more relevant. Cindy and Merle, both of you are chaplains. We're senior chaplains. Yeah. He makes a deal out of that, but (laughs) what it really means is we have a lot of experience with different circumstances. And what is a chaplain? An advocate. Historically, they were the go-between, between it could be the pastor, the bishop, and the king, or just they could advocate for the king and the people as well, the citizenry they would do most of their work in the sub-cathedral that was called the chapel. It was just going alongside people and uh, listening to their story, not fixing their problems. So there's a lot of chaplain roles today, like in the military. First responders, fire, police, they often have their own chaplains. And we are community chaplains, meaning that we don't represent a specific organization like a hospital or a department of the government. We have been working with bereavement and traumatic loss and other kinds of life losses, facilitating groups. We've worked with hospice, and we do volunteer for structured organizations, but not in the capacity of chaplains. That's more who we are, and we try to bring that to whatever volunteer experiences we're going into. So when I think of chaplains, like you mentioned, all of those things, is it always trauma and death that chaplains are called in for? It can be just personal problems from with a sports chaplain. Seahawks have a chaplain. So it can be personal issues, uh, encouragement, even they're around to hear good news. And sometimes businesses will have a chaplain available Mm -hmm. and it's mainly to provide a spiritual aspect to different events that are going on for a spiritual reference, spiritual support. And there are chaplains like in the government for the Senate and the House that will open and close the day's work. So it's a presence that you'll find in a lot of different types of organizations and a lot of times just to be a support as needed. And there's a story uh, from World War II called The Four Chaplains on the USS Dorchester. They had four chaplains, two Protestant chaplains, a Catholic chaplain, and a rabbinical chaplain. The ship was torpedoed in 1943 off the coast of Newfoundland. The chaplains got people, as many as they could, 900 people, safely off the sinking ship. And when life jacket supply ran out, they gave up their own. And then they locked arms and went down with the ship. Fortunately, that doesn't happen to chaplains, but they were there to advocate for people at that time of crisis. And that's where we meet most of our people when they're at a time of emotional crisis. We work with several agencies with trauma. It can be uh, survivors of suicide, uh, homicide, and uh, just plain old grief. You know, I lost my spouse of 30 years. We meet them in that transition time where there, there can be a chaos and emotional crisis. And we get in the muck with them. Do you have a website? It is called Grief and Trauma Chaplaincy.com. Chaplains are not therapists. They're not experts. Can you talk about that a little bit? We call ourselves companions. That's off the model. It's a departure from therapy. We do some of the same things that therapists do. We have exercises. We work with people with their vocabulary so they can express the emotions that they're feeling, the pain. 
and vocabulary is nourishment for addressing those emotions. So we want them to be as articulate as possible and we just listen. They take the lead, we don't take the lead. And the therapist, they'll tend to take the lead or go side by side where we do. We don't lay out a plan for a patient. You know, we have people we companion and we just go alongside. So that's the difference between us and a therapist. We don't draw out a plan. When we see the term expert, then we kind of cringe a little bit. There are people that are experts in the field of grief, but when it comes to every individual, they are their own expert in their own grief process. I hope that that's empowering for people to hear because it's difficult when somebody thinks that someone else is going to be the expert and they don't engage completely in their own process. So we really try to make it clear we are not the experts for you. We are informed about the topic and we can give you feedback and support and information that helps you but uh, you are your own expert and we're just here to learn from you as we go. And that also happens with children. Children go through things a little bit differently. Well, we volunteered at Camp Erin, which is a wonderful, wonderful resource for grieving children uh, on up to the age of 17 or 18. Uh, they have a whole different grief process. They're grieving and then they're playing and then they're sad and then they're telling jokes. You know, and they're back and forth different ways. And so we have a process at Camp Aaron that Merle and I have been trained in to be able to help the children go through their process their way and still provide them with activities and information that they can use in their everyday life. That's really something because when the lights kind of go on, like this is the way life is going to be now, and they can start accepting some of the things they've been resisting it really makes for more peace throughout the whole family. And it has to be something presented to a, a child, say, to start out. If you approach a child, I'm so sorry, your mother was just killed in a car crash. The little boy or little girl goes, oh, okay. And then they go and hop on a swing and you think, what is going on here? And that's how it is with children. With them, you make it raw and you make it real. And you use the word died and death so they don't just put that off and they will process this little bits at a time and that's normal for children because if they don't if they aren't able to get the real information and go through their process then they're going to find a way to blame themselves or hold themselves accountable if only i would have been in the car with her or not had that argument this wouldn't have happened that kind of thing it's good to know that there is that for kids because sometimes i think the kid gets overlooked for that reason they seem to be fine now you mentioned camp erin that's e-r-i-n yes and then there's also a corresponding school year monthly meeting that families can go to where is camp erin located last time i checked there was like 48 locations nationwide the very first one was in snohomish county all over the u.s so right now those are being run in the seattle area by providence hospice they have a division for bereavement um, they're starting the king county one in june and then they're hoping for the snohomish county one again in august mm -hmm. yeah and they're accepting volunteers oh what does it take to be a volunteer do you need to be a chaplain you have to pass a background check. You have to go through the training, which is outstanding. There's also included in that training self-care, because you're going to hear some pretty dark stuff. The family stories, continuing 
problem. How do you unload that to where it doesn't become your trauma? So there's there's great techniques and tools that volunteers are trained with. So if somebody is interested actually in this one uh, coming up for King County, which is the Seattle area, then they can reach Providence Hospice. Grief and trauma is your area. Mm -hmm. And so what is the grief process? First of all, you have a significant life loss. That could be a, a job, financial reversal. You could lose your house. It could be a, a pet. It could be a betrayal uh, resulting in a divorce. Uh, and it could be a death. You're going to have different layers of grief. With like a divorce, you have to go see that person in court and argue over the kids. So that wound gets reopened over and over again. With mourning, that's the second leg of grief, is that's the outward expression of the inner pain, the emotions of grief. The common theme that you'll hear here is transitions. You're going to transition from one way of being that you were used to into another situation that's new to you. That's where we work with people is in that second transition. The first one is your life as you know it is going to change forever. It's never going to be the same. And then the second transition, and that's your significant loss or losses there. The second transition is chaos and distress. And that's where we meet most of our, uh, our dear ones. What we do then is work through them during that process. And we do let them know that there is a third transition for people that do process their grief accordingly the right way and that's a new identity and a new life you're going to be a stronger a different person stronger person and you'll probably have a new network of people uh, in your life that you had no idea would be there you th thought before oh i could always count on this loved one or this friend and they're nowhere to be found what happened that void's going to be filled by other people that can be other trusted listeners that could hold your story and share their story too and that's the companioning grieving the right way and that's a really interesting phrase because what does that mean and because we said each person is their own expert with their own grief it pretty much means having emotions, being angry, being upset, feeling guilty, having one that uh, we got from Brene Brown is anguish. She goes into quite a description of that in her Atlas of the Heart book that just came out. Mourning, just expressing all of those different emotions. And so we put all these words that we could think of on a sheet of paper in about a three-column list, and it all says normal right across the middle of it. So all of mm -hmm. these things are the right way to grieve. And we let people know you're not going crazy this is normal and it's chaotic it's very messy so in the end we help people to integrate their loss into their everyday life because some people try to tell them oh you should be over it by now and you're not crazy because you've been grieving for two or three years your life loss may be really significant or maybe for 10 or 15 years and you just haven't found a way to get back to a life that means something to you so these are things that we can help with. And then if they need therapy, if they're dealing with a specific kind of past traumatic event that they can't get over, there are well-qualified therapists that we do refer to. I often hear people put kind of a time frame on grief. You'll hear someone say, well, golly, has been dead for six months. You think she'd be moving on? Or Yeah, it takes as long as it takes. There's your time frame. There's your hard and fast rule. <laughs> and we've heard the phrase bereavement leave is really funeral leave. It's not. Bereavement takes a very long time, but 
what you get from work that few days off is really funeral leave would be the more appropriate way to say that. And so. we, we split people off into three groups and there's obviously more but three are the ones that are going to listen to the story and we call those the approach people. They'll be there, they're not going to fix you because you're not broken, they're not going to have all the answers but they're just going to be there. Those are the companions. Then you have the second group, you should be over this by now. Didn't you have your three-day bereavement leave? When I went through this, you know, it, it wasn't this messy. And then you have the third one, so you have approach and avoid. And then you have anxiety people. They're going to give you the advice and they're going to tell you, you know, what you're doing wrong. We show people how to put boundaries in place to protect yourself from the second two. Because are they close enough to where they can push those buttons every time. So we do have a little exercise on relationships where we have people write down their relationships, good ones and bad ones, and responses to the person or the responses that person has to them, and then what they want to do with that relationship. Do they want to keep it? Do they want to put it on pause? Do they want to let that relationship go? If it's a bad relationship. If it's a good relationship, how do they want to nurture it? We have a lot of good relationships and we kind of can overlook nurturing those because we're just so stuck in our grief and people are offering to help and we don't know sometimes to find a way to let them help so that they can use their talents and their energies to help you. When we keep on declining to be helped because we thought, well, I don't really need help. I, nothing's really going to make this better. At least if we are accepting people's reaching out, we're going to find that we get time with them, that they can invest their energy in us, and they become a part of our healing process, which mm -hmm. is really rewarding to the individual. So we do encourage people to find ways to accept help and accept support. To instruct others, because a lot of these people that care are going to approach with curiosity. That's the right way to approach the griever because we're going to learn from them whether the griever is an adult or a child. They can put things in place like, you know that last statement you just said to me, that wasn't helpful. I'm grieving. And then they can actually learn how to establish their identity, protect themselves. So it sounds like the website is a great resource, but meeting with people can go a little deeper. There's two, two questions I have. One is you mentioned skills. Do you mean skills that you teach like tools? both ways for the person that's going through it and for their companion because a lot of what we teach is going to be to students and people that are in ministry different places people in churches other chaplains and we're teaching them and even clinicians don't necessarily think about companioning so we're teaching them to approach with curiosity as Merle said where we come in and we say tell me about this from the standpoint of allowing the person to talk in a safe place where they don't have to worry about what my reaction is going to be. They can say whatever they want and they know that I've heard just about everything so it isn't going to be too shocking, it's not going to be upsetting, it's not going to be hard on me to hear that and they can just say whatever is on their heart to say. Yeah, we'll get the little old ladies, the church going, uh, have suffered a, a horrible traumatic loss of a loved one and then you'll or hear several yeah and you'll hear in a gravelly voice out of nowhere why the bleep did somebody do this to my you know right out of nowhere and and that's music to our ears because that's what they're feeling that's what they're experiencing and they put that out there and then we can 
work with that and explore that. So when we go through the process of listening then for the benefit of the person who's grieving, we have what we call three P's and that was developed by um, a doctor that is at the University of Washington and has been at Virginia Mason and he's written a lot of material on traumatic losses and grieving and he recommends understanding of pacification, uh, the ability to calm yourself, and then partition, the ability to set aside what's happening and be present to, you know, just being able to step back and be an observer as opposed to feeling like you're participating in the moment. And then perspective, to be able to put this on pause and look at it to make a safe way of getting support and taking time to look back at it later and get a perspective on the whole thing. So we have a video, a five-minute video on the website about resilience, and that's a word that's tossed around quite a bit today. It has a lot of several different meanings. We talk about coping and adaption to be the definition of resilience. And with the three Ps, and that's Dr. Ted Reinerson, by the way, he's one of the great trauma psychiatrists and researchers of our time. On the video, are things actually going to be that bad if it plays... 99 times out of 100, it's not. Put things in perspective. You can put things back in the box, back on the shelf for now. Those are self-soothing and self-calming skills that we help provide. We really encourage people also to be compassionate to themselves. Watching endless television shows, drinking all the bottles of wine, you know, that's not really going to help you process information. That's numbing activity. So we want people to be able to experience the emotions that they're going through and think of it as a wave where it's going to rise up to a peak, it'll be intense, and then it's going to calm down and settle out. Well, the next wave's going to come. Don't be completely thrown off by it, even though it's going to be big and it might knock you over to at least be aware that these waves come unpredictably and one right after another sometimes. But then the intensity does slow down a little bit and you get a chance to take a breath in between. So we can help people to kind of understand what they're going to be experiencing and also to recognize that that's normal. Grief does not come in stages. So this is a problem <laughs> we run into. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did a lot of great research, and she provided information that helped people to understand their own impending death. That got hijacked into grief and recovery, where you talk about go through these stages, and then you'll be done with your grieving. Easy. But, you know, there's an end point. They're misappropriating the information that she provided. There's not a stage. There's going back and forth and back and forth. And Dr. Reinerson uses a model that was already established that shows a zigzag between thinking back about the loss, thinking forward about what you have to do today. You have to get the food on the table for the kids before they go to school and then you're back in your loss and not functioning because you're crying too hard to go to work and then you're going forward because there's a dentist appointment and then you're going back because you just remembered oh, you know, we had a dentist appointment, I have to cancel for the person who just died. Yeah. Um, and so forward and back and forward and back. Well, in the traumatic loss, there's another whole looping process where you go through their death again and again and again in your head. What could have been different? What could I have changed? Where could I have been? What might have been done differently? Mm -hmm. And that 
kind of entertains a fantasy that you had control over the outcome, and we don't have control over that. The looping imagery of, of traumas where you can get stuck. The death event may have been momentarily, but the time, the years that it loops through your head and turns to nightmares when you sleep can really be torturous. So we work with those folks as well. You work with trauma, but then you've got post-traumatic stress, which a lot of people are dealing with coming out of drugs and alcohol because they've seen so much trauma. Mm -hmm. So what is post-traumatic growth? You have what's called PTSD to start as post-traumatic disorder. And we changed the D to distress and psychiatry is getting pretty smart there and doing the same thing. Can become a disorder if it's not processed. And like we talked about the right way to grieve is processing it and not not stuffing it down would you want people to get off that super highway of drugs and chemical influences Mm -hmm. that's not (laughs) the position of medications is to interrupt a process that's going on it's not intended that medications would be used to help somebody grieve it doesn't work like that a lot of times when people go down that rabbit hole of drugs and alcohol then when they come out could be years later, they still haven't dealt with that trauma. So that's what I'm thinking you're talking about here. Oftentimes it's been misdiagnosed. And we see that with children through the ACEs study. Adverse childhood. Childhood experiences. And that was a study done by a, a doctor at Kaiser Permanente. Uh, and it talks about childhood traumas. When the attachment is broken, there is no attachment with the mother or the, between the mother and the child. So there's trauma that comes from that. Did the child see the mother get beat up? All these childhood traumas are manifesting itself in behavior, depression, and there's tremendous misdiagnosis of ADHD. And so that never gets treated. And so then with the chemical influences, we're numbing ourselves. We're hiding and stuffing away the emotions instead of facing them and experiencing them and learning what's happening and giving our brain an opportunity to process what's going on, to think about it, to reflect, to consider all the different things that our brain wants to go. You know, there's a whole bunch of different directions. And if you're using chemical influences to stop that process, then like you said, it gets put on pause for as long as the chemicals are present. Back to what we were talking about with post-traumatic growth, people that are able to process the trauma, and that takes community, they're able to expand and their life changes and improves greatly. They become kind of magnets for people around them that are suffering. You start to see wisdom, community outreach uh, with these people. And that's the post-traumatic growth that we see with trauma people that have no hope when we run into them, when we first meet them. And, and the same with grievers, it's a hopeless situation. And initially we don't really talk about hope uh, with our traumatized or grievers because they'll just say, you're out of your mind, there is no hope. So we kind of hold off, either they bring it up or we'll do in, in group five. And then they can start to see that glimmer right there. Someone listening is thinking, I never really dealt with my trauma and I don't want to bring it back because they believe it's going to be as painful or more painful. What would you say to those people? We're working with one woman in a group right now. She had put this off for 20 years, a traumatic loss. She had kids to raise. She had probably a business to run her career. She just told us, "I, I can't avoid it any longer. It'll kill me. I'm actually getting used to leaning into the pain. 
and learning from the pain. So it's it's instructive, like Ben Franklin said, if it's painful, it instructs. And people are starting, it takes time, but they're starting to understand that. Let's talk about this bit by bit so we don't get overwhelmed five years from now or when I'm older and I'm more isolated and I don't have the resources to process this. Let's do this now. We do encourage people to put together a support system around them. So we look at, do you have different people that you can lean on for different purposes? The people you can talk to, people you can spend time with, people that you can work with or that are supportive with whatever your job responsibilities are, people that you can get support from with your children and your family. And then we try to help them understand, you know, mortality is a thing. When you see someone die in front of you that wasn't supposed to die, then we have to kind of accept the fact that we may be on that path as well. We have an opportunity to talk about we are in a life that ends and we are going to have our own mortality. However, it's not today. And we have a lot of other things. Do what you can do to make the world a better place while you can. Well, how can I do that when I'm just completely overwhelmed by all of this? I said, well, you can start with yourself. So let's be compassionate toward you. And then we have, of course, some of those tools are lists of ideas or reflections that people have done, things that they've done for commemoration, to remember their person in a positive way, things that they've done to celebrate the life of somebody randomly. Maybe they have this celebration of life after the death, but they also can do little things for themselves. One of my things is the three days a year, so birthday, death day, and anniversary, then just taking that day to do whatever it is that I feel like doing and sometimes I invite Merle sometimes I don't we just have this kind of routine out of a whole year you know three days part three parts of days is not a whole lot to ask and then we also are a part of like the Association for Suicide Prevention healing conversations and then somebody can call in and say I'm really struggling with the loss of my person who died from suicide I don't even know what to do. And so we have those resources, some of what we have described to you and some of which are on our website. Mm-hmm. Also to be able to sit and listen to whatever they have to say that they haven't been able to express. Some of these folks are so fogged in, they don't even remember going online and filling out the request to have healing conversations. And this is through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. This is national. And we want people to be able to be open to wider and deeper empathies and wider and deeper human connections. Those connections are the core of healing. And post-traumatic growth as well. So we're just trying to reach out into our community in a way that helps us to be available and then to train others to be very available. So we just want to love people through those hard days. And I want to point out that there's an invisible community almost everywhere. We sometimes are out because of hospice, are out at two or three in the morning. There's a whole community out there that we just don't see during the day. So eyes open, reach out, support people, encourage them, and hear their story when you can. Our website is griefandtraumachaplaincy.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for uh, coming along and telling us about this. I feel like we have a world right now that isn't very good at listening. And hearing you brings a lot of hope that uh, there will be more listening going on. Well, thank you. Thank you.
I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today, and we hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference.